You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Following Jesus to the cross, where we will be walking through um, the days and the, the, the life of Jesus leading up to the cross. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. We're going to go to 16 today. So if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one underneath the seat around you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take a copy with you today as a gift from us. So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is God's word. Praise be to God. I'll be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Uh, Congratulations. You won. You have now conquered the worst uh, morning of the year, which is daylight savings. The only one worse is the day after Christmas, but... You made it. So if you're online, you say I made it. So still appreciate you. Good job. It's good to have you guys. Uh, So like Jenna said, uh, we've been walking through a series called Eyes Full of Grace. And what we've been doing is taking a look at the teachings, uh, parables, stories, interactions of Jesus uh, versus on the last week of his life as he uh, experiences the transfiguration on the Mount of Olives and then kind of really sets his face towards Jerusalem Uh, to go do what he had been called to do, uh, what he had stepped in to do to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we we think that this is, uh, obviously all of Jesus' life is very important, but it's kind of uh, interesting as we kind of focus on this specific last week, and I think there's some really good wisdom we can glean from it. So we've been trying to do that. Um, I want to talk to you about parables for just a second. Uh, Parables are are basically stories that often Jesus will give um, to kind of explain some truths. And so uh, one thing that's important when you interpret parables is this has kind of helped me over the years to not get off into too many rabbit trails that you can't get back from. 
uh, and that's this, that usually when Jesus tells a parable, not every single minute detail is necessarily meant to have significant meaning, okay? And it doesn't mean that Jesus is just using frivolous words, but what I mean is that Jesus usually has one overarching point to the parable that applies to the immediate context that he's in and is supposed to teach something about the kingdom of God. So I hope that makes sense to you. So, so basically, there's usually about one or two things Jesus is really driving home. Some of the other details, if you get lost too far down them, uh, could be very confusing and sometimes not helpful and even seem a little bit theologically incorrect. Though Jesus is not theologically incorrect, obviously. Uh, but this has been something that's kind of helped me. And so today, there's a lot of things I like to venture about the parable, but I want to stay safe. I got about three main things I want to mention that I think Jesus is trying to teach us in this scenario. Okay, so I like to pray and then we'll jump into it. So if you guys could join with me, you can bow your heads. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you so much and we appreciate your word. It's a great gift to us. And we came here this morning not to hear the words of men, but your words, God. So please help us, Holy Spirit, to have ears to hear and eyes to see what it is that you're teaching us. I pray that we wouldn't harden our hearts, but rather that you would give us soft hearts, God, hearts of flesh, hearts to hear your word, apply it, believe it. God, this is an act of grace though, and we need your grace right now. We pray for that together. We pray, help us to understand and apply your word and let it lead us to worship you and rejoice in your gospel of grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so in order to understand the context of what's happening here, if you look at the first verse, first word, he says for. Okay, so what that is, every time you see that word, most likely it's drawing back to what just happened or what has been mentioned previously. Okay, he's saying because, so because of that, this. Okay, and so we're going to look at verse 19, um, and I'm going to explain a little bit. I'm going to start reading in verse 26 in one second here. But basically what's happening here before this parable that Jesus gives is there's a rich young ruler who's got tons of stuff. He's rich, okay? And he comes up to Jesus asking what he needs to do to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus gives him a, a list of things. And there's various um, tellings of the stories in the Gospels. But uh, Jesus gives some things to do. And he says basically that he's done these things since his youth, right? He's kind of been doing pretty good. And then Jesus says, okay, well, you lack one thing. You need to sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then you come and follow me. And when this happens, the response of the young, rich ruler is it says he went away sorrowful because he had many great possessions. And so he was not willing to venture the loss of his things, the loss of his treasure for the treasure of Christ. He wasn't willing to venture that, okay? And the disciples are pretty baffled by this scenario. It's pretty crazy. He says he's not going to sell things. He's not going to follow them. And so uh, they look and say, basically, like, what's going on? And Jesus says, look, uh, it, it is so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. It would be easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. And his disciples are continually even more baffled. And they say, well, how in the world can anyone be saved, right? And this is where we pick up in the story in verse 26. It says this, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, 
you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So long story short, what is happening here is uh, the disciples are, are basically saying, look, you know, we... We've, we've left a lot of things for you. And Jesus acknowledges this. And they basically say like, well, what's going to happen to us, right? If the rich man wasn't willing to give up those things and he was sent away sorrowful, what happens to us who were willing to give up those things? And, and Jesus begins to say, uh, one, he acknowledges that salvation is, is absolutely impossible apart from the work of God. So there's grace element here we'll get to in a minute. Uh, but he goes on to say, look, you guys who have left all these things, you'll be paid a hundredfold. And he gives them an example to them. The 12 apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom of God, and they're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. What that looks like, I have no idea. I'd be willing to speculate with you later, but not right now. But it's crazy, right? That's an audacious promise to them. And I think what is happening here is Jesus, knowing all things, is probably seeing this wave of pride swelling up in the apostles, right? I mean, he just gave them the greatest promise of honor of all time, right? And so he, him probably seeing this, Uh, goes on to mention, but those who are first will be last and the last will be first. And so Jesus gives us this principle. It's not necessarily an exact equation, but what it means is those who are despised in this life, who are nothing in this life, will most likely by God and his grace be exalted above anyone. And then those who have a high station in this life will probably be pretty low on the totem pole of all things considered in the kingdom, right? And so, This principle, the first will be last, he's going to mention again in verse 16 when he finishes the parable. And so we know this is connected, okay? And so I think this was a gracious warning to the apostles' pride, this parable. And I also think that it gives us some valuable lessons at what it means to labor for the kingdom, to receive eternal life, and to step into the joy of our master. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about today as we walk through the parable. So A few things I want to keep in mind. There are some characters, some elements of this parable that I want to mention just so we're kind of all aware of what we're talking about here. So first we have the master of the house as mentioned. This represents God. Okay, God is the master, sovereign Lord. It's what Jesus is communicating. You have the vineyard, uh, which represents the church or or really anywhere the context of the laboring uh, for Christ takes place. You also have the laborers. Those are the people whom God has graciously called into himself and for the labor of his kingdom. So those who believe the gospel. And and then you have the actual labor itself, which is service in the kingdom of God. And I do want to define service because normally, and probably rightfully so, and this is probably good, but when we think of service or labor for God, we think of the Great Commission, right? We think of uh, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, basically sharing the gospel, right? Teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. And that's good. That is a part of laboring for Christ. But I want to define it a little bit differently so we don't catch the other aspect of this, which is, um, here's how I would define it. Now, I risk being too simple, but here's what I would say. Um, Service in God's kingdom is to worship him and cause others to do the same, okay? Now, that was maybe poor language because we don't cause that. God does, right? It's his grace, but we lead others to do the same thing. But there's an element of worshiping God that is part of the work going on in the vineyard in this parable, okay? So our work as we are called out of our idleness and our 
darkness into his light and his work in the vineyard is that we worship him and we lead others to do the same. This is the calling on your life. This is the only work in your life that matters. And this is an important thing. So these are our characters here. Um, so I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 to get a little bit of backstory of, of what's happening leading up to this. And then we're going to kind of walk through some points uh, in reverse order of how they're found in the text. Just because that's how it helps me. I'm sorry. Okay, you can go back and maybe read you that later. But uh, verses 1 through 5 says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth and ninth hour, he did the same. So what's happening here is you got this master of the vineyard. He goes out early in the morning, finds some people to come work the vineyard, uh, and they agree for a day's wages. It was a denarius, okay, that was what you'd make roughly in a day. And they agreed to come on and labor. And then what happens is the master goes out again. The third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, he sees people being idle, and he basically does the same thing. He says, hey, just come. I'll pay you what's right. Just come to my vineyard and come work. Now, the Hebrew culture, they divided time, the work day, into 12 hours. It was roughly 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So this is where you get that language of the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the 11th hour, etc. cetera. Um, that's kind of what's happening there. And so uh, basically what happens is this master goes out and he's calling people to come in and to come and labor because they're kind of sitting around in the marketplace just kind of idle not really doing much. So he's like, hey, come work, come make some money and I'll pay you what's right. And so the first thing I want to mention about this parable, kind of leading into the rest, is that God is the master of the vineyard. Okay, God is the master of the vineyard. There's many important implications of this. I want to name a few, but first let's look at verses 13 through 16. Let's look at the language of the, the kind of the, the master's representative and what he says. Um, so let's start in verse 13. And this is right after in verse 11 and 12 where they complained, right? The guys that got there first, they complained about not getting paid more than the guys who got there and didn't do much work, okay? And here's how he responds. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. I love that language. It's pretty intense, right? <laughs> Am I not allowed to do what I want with my stuff? Are you going to tell me I'm unjust and unfair, right? Uh, but what this is highlighting, and there's several points here, is, and what Jesus wants to communicate to us is that God's the master of the vineyard, okay? No one comes to the service of the vineyard apart from the grace of God, and he is in control. We believe in a sovereign independent God. Amen. The Bible talks about him like this. It says he doesn't need anything. And if he did, he sure wouldn't ask you. All right. That's a little bit of a paraphrase, but he wouldn't ask you for it. Right. It goes on to say he, he owns the, the, the cattle on a thousand hill. He owns everything. He's not going to come. If he needed something, he'd go get it. He doesn't need you to give to him. So the point is, is that our Lord is the sovereign master of the vineyard. He is not indebted to us. God does not owe us anything. He is not needing laborers. God is totally sufficient, totally okay, totally content by himself, has always been and will always be that way. This is the amazing mystery and beauty of the Trinitarian God that we serve. He is absolutely self-sufficient. So uh, because we labor for him does not mean that 
he now has a debt that he has to pay to us. It doesn't work that way, okay? And Jesus is trying to make that clear. It's not how the kingdom works. Um, the master calls anyone he pleases. God is calling men, women, and children to come and labor in his kingdom. And this is a gracious call. It is an amazing thing. But um, notice that no one comes up to the master and says, hey, I'm going to come in and vineyard do this, and you're going to pay me this. That's not how it works, right? God is the one going out and entreating these idle people that are doing nothing to come in and work and come get some reward for it, okay? So God is doing that. Another thing is, is that God not only calls who he pleases, but he, he gives what he pleases, right, as a reward. Like, there, there's no argument here. I mean, they try to argue, but God just shuts it down, right? He's like, no, this is what we agreed upon. Have I not been fair? I could do what I want with my own stuff, right? So God decides uh, what we get, and praise be to God for it, because if uh, it was just strictly a matter of justice, we would get a lot worse, right? But God is very overwhelmingly gracious to us always, and we see this in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He rewards according to his perfect standards. And what I want to say is that there is no injustice done here in the parable, okay? That's what Jesus is getting at. There is no injustice here. If God wants to sit the apostles on the 12 thrones, he's going to do it. If God wants to give you the same reward as someone else, he's going to do it. There's no injustice here. Justice would be hell. We have to always remember that when we think about that. I love Genesis 18.23, ask the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And we say yes and amen, he will. He is always just. He is always perfect in what he does every single time. And we embrace this about God because if it was up to our justice, it'd be miserable, right? It'd be miserable, but God is a good God. And he rewards as he sees fit. Um, and these are important things. And we're going to get into a, a lot of the goodness about this. But I want to just let that resonate with us. That, that God is the master of the vineyard. We don't have say. Well, we, we aren't leading the charge in the vineyard. We are not the one keeping the vineyard from falling apart. It is the master. The master calls his laborers. He loves his laborers. And he graciously rewards his laborers. And we get to take part in that. And it's amazing. So that's number one. Um, so not only is God the master of the vineyard, but uh, number two, it is a gift of grace to labor in the vineyard. Now we get this as we see over and over again, right? There's people that are idle, kind of lost, laying around, doing whatever, who knows, that's not specific. And then the master of the vineyard comes up and invites them in to come labor and do something with their lives, right? And even make some money for it. It's a pretty gracious thing for the master to do that. But look at the heart and the response. Look what they miss. The guys that came first, look what they miss. Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in scorching heat. These guys are furious, right? These guys are mad. An injustice in their mind has occurred and they're upset. They miss the whole point of the labor in the first place, that it is a gift of grace to labor in the vineyard. Amen? It's a gift of grace. A few things I want to mention about this. One is that you cannot earn or be worthy of deserving the call to come labor. You cannot. No one can. It's impossible. It's impossible to be worthy of the call of God. You are worthy of damnation, period. There's no merit here. There's no merit in the kingdom of God. 
Now, it's not to say that there aren't rewards. The Bible is very clear. You read 1 Corinthians 3 and other passages, talks about our works being presented before the Lord and then actually brought through the consuming fire and maybe burned up or maybe uh, rewarded. So there's different levels of rewards, but we got to keep in perspective. I'm talking about the main reward. This parable is talking about the main reward, right, which is to have Jesus Christ forever, right? This is our pleasure, our treasure, our joy, and um, there's no merit involved. You can't earn it. I love it. I love this. This is beautiful and freeing if you believe it, but our hearts are bent towards earning, so we have to be careful. So God does not owe us anything good. He's not obligated to give us good things or invite us to labor, but he does, and it's a gift of grace. Um, So we should not feel like Christ owes us anything. That's a bad feeling. If you feel in some way that God is indebted to you, that's not a good feeling, okay? Um, There should be no pride that swells up inside of us as if we've earned our keep or we have value because of what we do. Um, It's just not true. You are very valuable to God. I would never take that away from anyone, right? In Christ, we have value, but it's not because of what you do. It's not because of your labor. It's because of what he's done and his labor, right? And so that's important to remember. Um, Another implication of this is we should not be envious of people, okay? I'm gonna get real with you for a second, all right? Not maybe personally, just in general about our culture. Um, We should not be envious of other people, okay? Uh, God has bestowed upon you the life he has called you to. This is true about everyone in the world. You were born in the place God wanted you to be born. You were blessed with the things God wanted you to be blessed with, and you were withheld the things God wanted to withhold you, Okay? We should not be envious of other people. Social media has killed us in this. It existed before social media, but now it's just a little more awkward because we can do it with a lot more people, okay? And then it's just overwhelming to us. What happens is we look at someone and we say, uh, basically we see, right, that God has blessed them in all the ways that we have longed to be blessed, right? God's blessed other people, and it seems like their life's so perfect. Clearly it's not, but it seems that way, right? It seems like in all the ways that you've longed to be blessed in this life, you'd get rid of tons of stuff in your life if you could be blessed in these certain ways, and it seems for some reason God has withheld those things from you. Do you call him unjust? Is that unfair? Is that bad? Is that not gracious? The answer is a resounding, yes, it's gracious. God's aim for you is not your blessing here, right? God's aim for you is the eternal joy of being invited into the joy of your master. That's God's aim for you. We should not be envious of other people. Look, I don't care if you have a disease that's going to kill you young. I don't care if you lost a job or you weren't able to do this or that. And I'm not trying to press on any wounds. I'm not going to mention a lot of things. I just say, whatever it is, God withholds what he withholds for his good purposes. And that's what we need to trust in and believe in. And so this kind of truth of this being a gracious gift to be invited into his kingdom, I don't care what ailment or loss it comes with, it's worth it, right? I mean, that's the whole point of what Peter's talking about to Jesus. And Jesus responds like, look, anyone who's left these things for my kingdom is going to get a hundredfold. I know sometimes it's not things we left, it's just things we never got. But we, we must stop looking at other people's lives and longing for what they have. That's not the way to joy. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, the Bible promises that God withholds things for you, from you, for your joy. That's a good thing. And so anyone, despite what God has not given you, can labor in his kingdom when he calls you. And this is a joy. Another thing to mention here is the thing about 
them all getting the same reward. I mean, this is really cool, but I think an application would be that we are all partakers in the same glory. I don't care if you were the greatest apostle or the weakest Christian. I don't care if you are the strongest prayer warrior or you show up on the finish line being dragged or maybe even unconscious being carried, okay? I don't care what the situation is. We are all partakers in the same glory. That's why the Bible says a bruised reed, he will not crush. A bruised reed is literally good for nothing except to be fodder for fire, right? And it says that God will not crush that bruised reed. No matter how weak you are, no matter how much you feel like you're walking with a limp and just leaning on Christ, we are all partakers in the same glory. And the implications of this are vast. I don't want to get into too much details about the parable because I don't know. There's lots of interpretations of it, but this could be like a uh, Jewish Gentile thing. This could be other things. But the, the point in all of this is that this is a gracious warning to the apostles' pride that we all inherit the fullness of the kingdom. Yes, other people might get greater rewards in the kingdom with different things, whatever that looks like. You always hear the joke, like someone's gonna have a bigger mansion or something. I don't know how that works, okay? But the point is this, is that even in Revelation, what happens to all of those who got crowns and were these amazing people, they cast them at the feet of Christ, right? Because Christ is the real reward. Yes, I wanna work as hard as I can for the kingdom and I want all my works to not be burned up, but to look really good when I get to eternity, but don't ever miss the prize, which is Christ. And we all inherit that, every single one of us, whether you gave your life on the mission field or you spent your life right here doing your thing, loving the Lord, serving the Lord, we all inherit the kingdom. Another thing to point out on this topic is that God will keep his promise always, right? God did not uh, the master in this scenario did not uh, forego his promise. He did not underchange them. He agreed with them and he gave it to them. And they looked at the other people and said, I'm going to give you what's right. And he gave them what was right. God always, always keeps his promises. And lastly, on this topic, um, just remember, God always gives us more than we deserve. He always gives us more than we deserve. We go back to the deserve principle, right? Always healthy thing, you know? Whenever you feel like you're doing something really good in life, just ask yourself, what do I deserve? Okay. It's not an ice cream cone for how good you did. It's, it's far worse, okay? Um, and it's always a good principle. I'm not saying you don't always feel bad about yourselves and weep that you suck really bad, okay? I'm just saying that we should keep that in perspective. But God always gives more than you deserve. He's gracious. He is bountiful. He is bountiful with steadfast love, and he gives it freely without cost. And this is amazing. Now we're getting a little bit personal, okay? That's for the third point because this is necessary because Jesus kind of gets personal. Now, this may not be the essential focal point of what Jesus is. I feel like the first two kind of wrap that up, but I feel like this is really good for us. It was good for me to consider and still to consider. I think it's good for our Christian culture that we currently dwell in to hear this. Um, Point number three, laborers cannot be idle in the vineyard. Let's look at verse six and seven. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, well, because no one's hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now, I, I love this question from Jesus uh, or the master in the parable from Jesus. Is, it's so good. But why do you stand here idle all day? Jesus is about to attack our idleness in ways that hurt and we should take notice. Now, like I said, there've been many interpretations of 
uh, what these hours represent. Some have said these hours represent really like God's redemptive history. And so God first, right, came to uh, the Jewish people with the law and then kind of continues and uh, kind of explain like the 11th hours, like the Gentiles who got in at the last minute there, but get to be saved. Others have interpreted this as maybe to say like, okay, um, this could be like stages of life when God calls you to himself and saves you. Uh, it could be early on when you're young and still have youthful zeal to come and labor. It could be later on when you're about to die on your 11th hour. Um, I'm not gonna venture to make a conclusion. I think that wasn't the focal point of Jesus but I do think there are some things helpful if we would consider the latter option. And here's what I mean by that. Um, We don't know when our laboring will end, right? That's a good truth to think about. We don't know when our laboring will end. It could end right now in this moment. It could end tomorrow. It could end 90 years from now, depending on how old you are, okay? It could end at any point. And one, that should put a fire behind us maybe to say, I don't want to be idle, right? I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to have the presumption that I can just kind of wait around being idle till the 11th hour and then Jesus is going to come when I'm an old person and we're just going to make things happen, be good. Definitely don't want to wait on that presumption. But I also think it encourages us for any stage of life we're in. I just want you to think about this for a second. Whether you feel very old or you feel very young and you have a lot of time, there is still fruitful work to be done for the kingdom of God. I don't care how much of your life you've wasted on the frivolousness of sin and debauchery. I I don't care how young you feel that you are. There is always time for fruitful kingdom. Time would fail me to talk about some of the old saints that were saved at the last wink of life and did amazing things for the Lord. There's much worship of God and spreading of that worship to be had in this life and praise be to God, no matter what phase it happens, we get to join in to this calling as Christians. So, one other thing I want to mention about this is the idea of the master calling them out of idleness, okay? Now, I would interpret this passage. You can have a different opinion. That's okay. I would interpret this as the people that are idle are people that have not believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may have said they did, but they don't. And Jesus is calling them, as effectual calling of Christ to come and labor in the vineyard, to come take part in the joy of the vineyard. And that answering that call to come is this moment of salvation and joy to enter the master. Okay, I would not interpret this as they're all believers and the people in the, ta- in the town square being lazy or just kind of lazy Christians. Now, I will say this, I'm not saying that we will not have laziness or idleness as Christians. I'm not saying that. I think sin is real and that will be a problem. I think we have seasons of idleness. I think some more than others. I think that some of us will, will, will limp to the end of our life saying, I don't know if I did anything right, but thank you God for grace. But I do think there is a difference in the idleness of not really knowing the Lord and being in the vineyard versus not really working hard in the vineyard. I think there's a difference. And I think what Christ is getting at is being called into the vineyard. And I mention that because this, I think in our culture that we should ask ourselves some tough questions, not to doubt the Lord's grace and love. I never want to have anyone that's a God's child to doubt that God loves them. We should always be encouraged to believe that even when we can't believe his promises are good. But let's just ask a few questions. I think this will help us. Have I always been idle? 
Have I professed Christ but never really entered into the labor of my master? Do I find no spiritual life or desire for Christ in me? Am I hungry to know him or am I not? Do I desire to worship God and take part in the fruitful labor of causing others, causing others to do the same? Do you feel alive? Do you feel the joy of knowing God? Do you feel the gracious assurance of trusting him for all things from here and forever? May we press on to Jesus in this way. May we come in, out of our idleness into our master's vineyard. Now, a few encouragements I want to say. I hope you don't feel smothered by this, okay? I ask these questions because it's important. Am I in the vineyard? We need to know that, right? It's important for us Christians that we know that we're in the vineyard and that we are whisked out of our idleness. But I hope you don't feel smothered by the call of God to come and labor. This, this happens too often for us and in our culture that we feel, we feel smothered by the call to do something, right? It's like we want the rewards of eternity, but we also want a comfortable life. And I don't want you to feel smothered this morning. Listen, God calls you out of burdensome slothfulness and idleness into the joy of the labor of his vineyard, okay? This is important. He is bidding you out of the burdensome laziness into the service of your gracious master. Think about the vineyard, okay? The vineyard (laughs) provides gracious shade for us when we are weary. The vineyard provides choice fruits for us when we cannot go on and need strength. Jesus here is not calling you to a burdensome life in the scorched heat. He is calling you to the joy of your master. The vineyard provides everything you need. God himself provides everything you need. Not only does he provide what you need to labor, but he's also laboring with you, right? God calls himself in John 15, the vine dresser. I love how this analogy ties in, but as you pick the grape, God is picking the grape. As you trim the vine, God is tripping the vine and we could continue God is laboring with us. It's his labor that makes our laboring effectual, right? It's his laboring that makes it worth something. And so my call this morning is don't be content to be idle outside of the vineyard. It's not a good place to be. Come, come to the vineyard is what Christ says. Come and labor in the joy of your master. Come and feed off the grapes of the vineyard and find rest for your soul. Look, oftentimes when we talk about laboring for Christ and evangelism, I just feel this weight, even in the way we talk about it. It's like, oh, it's so hard, right? It's like, oh, it's so scary. I'm going to be made fun of, you know, all these things. And I would say definitely talking about Christ and his love is in this world is scary, comes with its fears, It is hard. It comes with its hardships, especially depending on the context that you're giving it in. But it should not be a burden to us. We have to get out of this mindset. Life in Christ is not a burden. If it feels like a burden, I would venture to say that you may not know the master. Because you see, the master 
is the only easy thing in a world full of burdens. He is. He's the only thing that should feel like not a burden. Everything else, living life under the power of sin to some degree, living life in a fallen world, that's burdensome. But not laboring for Christ, that's not a burden. It's joy. And this morning, Jesus is both humbling us by saying, you're not that important, okay? The more important you look in this life, the odds are the less important you're going to look in eternity, okay? Just get that in your head. But we all receive Christ, the great reward. And so come, enter the joy of your master. Enter the vineyard and labor with all your might to worship me and spread my joy. In closing, may we believe in the God of all grace this morning. May we come and be clean. May we come and taste the shade of the vineyard. May we come find peace that cannot be taken away from us because the master's in control. And may we come and enter the service of our master with joy and take part in what truly matters forever. We are not jostling for prominence. We are entering the joy of our master. I want to leave you with one quote. Um, There's a man named David Brainerd. He was an American missionary to the American Indians. He lived to be 29 years old. He suffered most of his life with tuberculosis. He describes horrible scenes in the woods of him coughing up like blood and pieces of his lung. And, you know, he couldn't, in the wintertime, he couldn't stay in his tent because the smoke would make it unbearable. Um, A lot of suffering. He spent most of his life alone, never married, um, laboring for the Indians. Great guy uh, that I am aware of. And he wrote, uh, well, he he wrote in his journals a lot. And Jonathan Edwards was a contemporary of his. And he formed uh, into the greatest book outside of the Bible of all time, The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. And this comes from page 103 and 104 from that book. I suggest you read it. Um, But David Brainerd, uh, often in his journals, is just confessing his soul. Uh, At one point, he kind of feels like he's barely hanging on by a thread uh, and is about to fall into hell because he's so damnable. And and the next uh, entry, he's never been so close to heaven that he's willing to die right now because he just wants to be with Jesus in heaven forever. So it's kind of almost a little schizophrenic, but um, captures feeling in an amazing way that few have been able to do. And here's what he says. So in this journal entry, it's a long one. He had been talking about how God basically gave him this weird, pleasing pain where he found such joy in Christ and so longed to be with him, yet God purposely made him so unsatisfied and never felt like he had enough. And he talked about this being a gracious gift from God. And this is really what I'll pray for this morning for us. When we talk about entering the vineyard, laboring for Christ, to worship him, to press on out of idleness into the work, the real work with real life. Here's what I want to pray. Let's read his um, entry and then we'll pray together. He says this, Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, the pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. The language of it is, then shall I be satisfied when I awake in God's likeness. But never, never before. And consequently, I am engaged to press towards the mark day by day. Oh, that I may feel this continual hunger and not be retarded, but rather animated by every cluster from Canaan to reach forward in the narrow way for the full enjoyment and possession of the heavenly inheritance. And then he prays this. Oh, that I may never loiter in my heavenly 
journey. David Brainerd felt this such real joy in pursuing the Lord and said, Lord, don't let me idle. Don't let me loiter on my heavenly journey, but let me with passion and zeal run after you. And that's what I want to pray together this morning. I just want to pray, Lord, help us. And so um, you guys can bow your heads with me. Let's, let's, let's pray together and we'll respond with communion and worship. Father, thank you so much for your word and the truth of your gospel. God, I know we risk in talking about fighting out of idleness and into laboring with you. We risk trying to earn your favor. We risk trying to do it on our own strength. And God, as we've seen in this parable and in your teachings, that's impossible. We are helpless without you, Lord. But I do pray this morning for those who are idle in the marketplace and have never really known Christ and those who are so exhausted in the vineyard, unwilling to sit down in the shade. God, I pray that you would, with all zeal and grace and compassion, cause us to feel what we cannot feel on our own, Lord God. Cause us to feel zealous for your kingdom, to not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving you in the vineyard. May we taste the joy of our master, which nothing in this world can rob from us. May we hear the gracious call this morning to step in anew to the joy of laboring for you, God, the joy of knowing you and worshiping you. May you give us a holy discontentment that feels so joyful in one sense and so expectant because we love you and we know you and you're near, but at the same time feels so dissatisfied because we can never fully taste your goodness. And may it help us to long for more. God, make providence of people that rolls up their sleeves and gets to work in the vineyard not because by it we feel like we have worth, but because you have given us worth. You've invited us in and said, you'll give us what's right. And God, the only way it's right is because you gave your life for us and you paid our penalty. Apart from the gospel, what's right is death, but you have given us life. May we believe that truth this morning. May we enter the joy that you offer us, Lord. And may you tear us out of our sinful idleness. And we pray this in confidence and in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.